Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. I wanted to start with uh, with this thing that you mentioned in our morning editorial meeting oh. uh, today about uh, North Korea. This is something that we missed oh, last yeah. week. Oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, on Thursday, apparently, the United States tried to impose new, mm-hmm. tougher additional sanctions on North Korea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. North Korea, that country that is currently extremely retri- restricted from any normal trade or political relationships and right. has been for decades and is suffering from an outbreak of COVID right now. Yeah, yeah. So the United States uh, last week thought what they what they need is to get less into the country. Uh, China and Russia blocked Crazy. the sanctions attempt with their Security Council vetoes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, it's not necessarily altruism, right? China and Russia have their own self-interest sure. when it comes to North Korea. But it's not, you know, we don't have to rule altruism out. Um, but here's what China's ambassador at the UN said last week about the veto. Uh, that the draft resolution failed to pass because the U.S. had refused to accept proposals other than implementing sanctions. Mm-hmm. And they said China's Mm -hmm. voting position is based on our assessment as to whether a proposal contributes to a solution. What do you know? And then, of course, they they got in a little dig about, uh, you know, maybe maybe some people just want to continue the present situation. But I mean, that seems to just reflect the the reality. Right. Yeah. And the the reality of sanctions is that this has become our go to punishment for everybody we don't like. Right. And it doesn't work. No. All it does is it it makes poor people hungrier and poorer and restricts medicine from entering the country. I mean, we can ask the Cubans about sanctions. Sure. Yeah. What have what have sanctions done to Cuba other than to harm innocent people? What have sanctions done to North Korea's nuclear program? That's right. You know, literally nothing. It's ridiculous. Literally nothing. China and Russia proposed a counter resolution that would have actually eased sanctions (laughs) on North Korea over humanitarian concerns, uh, given that this is in the hill. The country's teetered on the brink of a famine and is in the midst of a COVID-19 outbreak. Yes. Uh, The U.S. said the council should not stand for these kinds of proposals. Uh, And of course, um, the ambassador's position was headlined thus in U.S. media, U.S. knocks China, Russia over U.N. inaction on North Korea threats. And again, inaction, this is inaccurate. There was a proposal. It was a proposal to try something different and to offer some relief to the people of North Korea. That's right. But anything other than uh, maintaining the status quo, we are going to describe as inaction when really I think it should be seen as the opposite. That's right. Yeah. It's just not, it's not fair. It's bad policy. Yeah. And it's not honest. It's ineffective and it's just, yeah, and it's dishonest and it, you know, has the added detriment of just further injuring regular people. Yes. If it does anything at all. Absolutely correct. Garbage. We mentioned yesterday in the midst of the show, the breaking news that Clinton campaign attorney Michael Sussman had been acquitted by a federal jury here in Washington. Um. You know, I've read everything that I can read about this case. I'm glad because I would like you to explain to me how it happened. Well, and I, I, I'm not sure. I, I mean, here's here's the case in a in a nutshell. Um, Michael Sussman was the Clinton, the 2016 Clinton campaign attorney. 
Mm -hmm. uh, he was given a copy of the Steele dossier and asked to pass it to pass it to the FBI. So he calls a contact of his who happens to be one of the deputy directors of the FBI. There are a whole bunch of deputy directors. Mm -hmm. And he says, I have to see you urgently. I have to give you something. I'm not representing anybody or any organization. I'm approaching you as a concerned citizen. Okay, that was a lie. And he put that in writing in a text message. Yeah. So then he goes to the FBI a couple of days later and he gives them a copy of the Steele dossier. He doesn't tell them where it came from and where it came from, because we now know it was called the Steele dossier, was right. Christopher Steele, who was a retired British MI6 officer who I knew quite well and worked with quite closely. Brian Becker and I used to talk about it all the time. Chris right. Steele was, was uh, he was the kind of operations officer that we all wanted to be like. Hmm. He was so good at what he did hmm. and he became kind of a nut. After his retirement, I, I, I'll never understand it. But anyway, I liked him and respected him very much until this whole thing started. So, um, so Sussman goes to the FBI and says, we have this uh, report. It contains explosive information about the Trump campaign and its ties to Russia through Alpha Bank, this Russian bank, blah, blah, blah. It's all accurate. None of it was accurate. Mm -hmm. It was all made up and it was commissioned. By the Clinton campaign. But he never said that. Well, then the FBI dropped the ball by passing it down to their own people and not telling them where it came from, which then made their job of investigating it even harder. So fast forward to whatever it was, 2018, and uh, Attorney General Bill Barr asks the FBI to investigate the Steele dossier and asks John Durham to be special prosecutor to prosecute any crimes that may have come out of the Steele dossier. So far, this is the only crime that has been prosecuted. And so they prosecute it in the federal district of the District of Columbia, a district where Hillary Clinton received 92% of the vote against Donald Trump. And uh, it was a pretty, I mean, it seemed to me to be a pretty clear cut case. I mean, this is the question I have. The, the question was, I mean, unless my understanding is completely off, the question was, did he lie to the FBI? Right? That was supposed to be the only question. Right? Or, did or he lie to the FBI? Yeah, okay. You either okay. did or you didn't. Yeah, yeah. And like and his why you was did in and why you didn't and all this other right. stuff is not as it's I understand it, not supposed to come into right. this determination. It can come into sentencing or right. whatever. Okay. okay. Right. Just want to make sure I'm clear. Maybe you were trying to do the right thing. You made sure. a silly mistake. Uh you know, you, you were trying to do the right thing. It wasn't a mistake. You did it on purpose. You right. thought that the, you know, the, the, In the service uh, of your country. Yeah, exactly. And so, OK, you're guilty. We give you no time for this. Right, whatever. Exactly. I'm just suggesting a possibility. Right. Right. And he was acquitted. The Washington Post interviewed two of the jurors coming out of the courtroom. None of the other jurors would speak to, to a reporter. And these two jurors agreed to speak, but wouldn't allow their names to be used. But they both said the same thing. They said, look, this was an easy case. It only took six hours to decide because we took a lunch break. Otherwise, it would have been decided earlier. And um, good on them. I'm going to say, sorry, <laughs> support for taking lunch breaks. Especially if it's on somebody else's time, take that lunch. That's I fine agree. with me. And, uh, and th th that was it. That was the end of it. 
So now you have to ask, how is it? E- uh, it's it's very yeah, it's very strange to me. Again, we, it's like the analogy where you know you 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 get a bad you know you know you you know you did a bad call, right? Whatever you, it, it was a bad call. It went against one team, and so you find an opportunity to make another bad call that goes against another team. This is the only thing right. I can think of here, but it's not really how the law is supposed to work. And there's an oddity here. Okay, the oddity is rather than say, okay, you know what. excuse me, rather than bringing this case in the Southern District of New York, uh, we we made the mistake of bringing it in the District of Columbia. Hillary is very popular. The FBI is very unpopular. Politically, we made a mistake here. That's not what they're saying. What uh, and and I'm not saying the FBI, that's not what the media are saying. What the media are saying. And this is really specific to The New York Times. is well the the uh, the steel dossier was true. It was accurate. Uh, the the Trump people were tied to the Russians, and the jury recognized that. That whether whether Sussman lied or not is irrelevant. What's relevant is he was trying to get the FBI to realize that this insidious uh, foreign power had tried to worm its way into our elections. None of that's true. And also, didn't all the, uh, wasn't there just testimony after testimony of FBI agents going, yeah, they brought us this stuff and it didn't, it, it didn't make any sense. Anything. Yeah, exactly. It didn't make any sense. Why the, the New York Times is doing this, I don't understand. But the New York Times is supposed to be the, the newspaper of record or one of three or four American newspapers of record. And so, you know, we really need to we really need to give this a lot of thought. Like, is is this what we want in our country? Well, yeah. And this is the reckoning. This is the reckoning of the very, you know what I mean? Like the the this trial, if I mean, this, the the correct assessment seems to be that the trial itself was poisoned by this narrative. Yes. Uh, you know, the trial correct. about the start of this narrative has been poisoned by this narrative because, again, yeah, we. Yeah. None of these retractions, you know, these corrections, retractions. Uh, it's not really a retraction. We're just going to rewrite a bunch of stories years later. That's as right. the, uh, the post media columnist has been pointing out. Uh, yeah, they never got as much attention as the original sort no. of sleight of hand. No, yeah. that's exactly well, right. I mean, you know, whatever. I didn't need Michael Sussman to go to jail for the rest of his life or anything. But it is, no, it and, is a weird it is a weird outcome. And see, now that's an important point, too. Yeah. That's an important point, too, that the that the post brings up. Uh, I also saw it in Politico this morning. Um, this was a, a trial that cost more than $3 million, right, to investigate and prosecute. The sentencing guideline calls for no jail time. The sentencing guideline calls for 12 to 18 months of probation. Uh, the Justice Department called this, before the, the decision, they called this a grave crime, right? It's not a grave crime. No. They say that about every crime. Every crime's a grave crime, even if it wasn't even a crime last year and Congress just made it a crime. Well, was it really worth pursuing it like they did? Was it really worth wasting $3 million and all these months and months of investigative time and and an army of prosecutors? For what? You know? Yeah. Should there... Maybe instead of been some sort of an administrative measure, maybe there should have been a complaint to the to the American Bar Association that he had said something to the FBI that wasn't exactly true. 
So, you know, we need to get our act together in this country. Everything's a grave crime. I'll give you another example because now I feel like I'm on a roll. All right. I used to sit next to a woman at the, uh, at the CIA who was a good analyst. Well, she ended up having an affair with, a, with a, somebody at CNN. And um, in the course of pillow talk, she mentioned something that was technically classified. And of course, he runs right to CNN and just broadcasts it wow. on, on global television, and, right? Yeah, okay. So they, I mean, actually, right. Go for it. <laughs> so job. they do an investigation, and they call her in, and she tearfully confesses to everything. Okay, now today, that would be multiple espionage charges, and she would be looking at dying in a prison cell. What did they do to her? This was 1996. What did they do to her? They put a letter in her file. <laughs> I mean, I would think, like, get fired. Sure. Like, that's the thing you're and not they supposed didn't. to do. You they get fired. They suspended her for six weeks without wow. pay. Wow. They made her ineligible for promotion for two years, and they put the letter in her file. Well, now she's in the senior intelligence service. I'm not going to say her name, of course, but she's one of the most senior people at the CIA today. Okay, so... Why did things change so dramatically? Now, what she did was wrong. Yeah. But I honestly believe that the punishment that she got was appropriate. Right? She I mean, didn't commit espionage. I mean, it's a minor thing. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. Certainly, she didn't commit espionage. She didn't commit espionage. Yeah. But this is what we do now. We, we immediately go to the extreme. We go to the most serious, most severe penalty. Yeah. And we try to ruin people's lives. And yeah. it's, it's it just wrong. It is a weird wrong. shift. Yeah. It, it does seem like the sort of... Response to relatively uh, petty uh, infractions. Yeah. Uh, it gets more and more draconian as this, like, you know, wholesale wage theft, just the like entire, entire financial industry being in a, a, a huge casino. Exactly. Right, that nobody can ever call because the whole thing will collapse. So just ignore that. But yeah, right. let's, let's just ruin the lives of any small person we encounter. There are a couple of other issues. That uh, that came up in in today's news, foreign policy issues. One, uh, and we don't have to necessarily discuss it, but the Turkish military has formally begun a military operation in northern Syria. This is according to announcement made by uh, Turkish leader uh, Recep Erdogan. The Turks are trying to create a buffer zone along the Turkish-Syrian uh, border in northern Syria, which is something that the Turks like to do. They like these ideas of of buffer zones. And um, and this buffer zone would connect two areas that are currently under Turkish control. The the Turks, frankly, are also looking for an opportunity to attack Syria's Kurds who are allied with Turkey's Kurds and who support Kurdish independence. So something to watch. Yeah. Another interesting story is that Canada's government said yesterday that it is going to allow British Columbia to try a three year experiment in decriminalizing uh, the possession of small amounts of drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, the policy does not legalize the substances, but you are allowed to possess up to 2.5 grams of drugs for personal use and you will not be arrested or charged for them. Mm-hmm. 2.5 grams is not a lot. It's more for some drugs than for others, but it's not a lot. And that itself is a cause of some controversy. Uh, the province had requested it be four and a half grams. Other organizations had wanted even more, but two and a half is what they got. And I think the reason for requesting more is probably so you're not like, just out every day trying to get a small amount of drugs, right? You can never just go out and get get 10 days worth of your supply and, and take it home, but mm-hmm. whatever. Um, 
the if the three year exemption, right? This experiment is going to start January 31st. It's going to apply to people who are 18 and over. Mm-hmm. And the reason they are doing this, this includes opioids, cocaine, methamphetamines, MDMA. The reason they're doing this is that Canada is in the midst of an opioid crisis that is nearly on the scale of what we are experiencing oh, yeah. here in the U.S. And not quite. But it's getting close. And British Columbia is one of three provinces where most of these deaths are occurring. Um, I did a bunch of quick math. So if I'm wrong, really forgive me. But I was looking at the, you know, deaths per population, you know, per capita in British Columbia. And in that province, it is about at what we have seen for the U.S. as a whole. Right. Wow. And so I think it is interesting to note that. Canada is looking at this one province and going, man, we have a real crisis here. Like this is time. What we're doing hasn't been working. This is time for a radical action. Yes. And and trying an experiment, a, a, you know, much bigger experiment in harm reduction. I mean, look right. at the U.S. That's the rate for the entire U.S. It's not the rate for West Virginia right. or counties in Ohio. Where it's or worse. Wherever. Yeah, where exactly where it's worse. So, you know, I, I, it'll be interesting to see what the result of this is. Right. Uh, Canada is not out there alone. Portugal in 2001 decriminalized the consumption of all drugs. Hasn't turned back. Portugal seems to be doing fine. And it's worked in Portugal and it's worked in Uruguay where it was also done. Um, Oregon did the same thing. 2020 voted to decriminalize hard drugs. Uh, uh, You get a fine of $100, but it's waived if you call a hotline for a health assessment. It's just, you know, I I mean, really seems seems worth a try. And again, I think like. I, I was I was, I guess, a little bit surprised to see uh, that Canada's overdose death crisis is, uh, you know, approaching the level of ours. Uh, I guess I am not surprised to see that the U.S. response is going to be m- more cops, maybe. Yeah, I, I don't see us doing anything really differently to, to deal with that's it. That's what will happen. So that's worth watching, I, I think, for the next couple of years. We're going to take a break now and come back to talk about inflation we're going to talk more about propaganda. <laughs> We're going to talk about recycling plastic and whether that's just entirely a myth. We've got lots coming up here on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are talking about inflation and the Biden administration's efforts to appear to respond to it. And I am not editorializing. That is how it's being reported, and that seems correct. It is how can the Biden administration appear more sympathetic? And I will read you a subhead here from the Washington Post as an illustration. Biden's team launches a flurry of events after president fumes privately that administration isn't doing enough to show concern on high prices. So, John, a flurry of events (laughs) to show concern. And my bank balance feels better already. Joining us to get into what is and isn't happening right now is Robert Hockett. He's a professor of law and professor of public policy at Cornell University. He's also senior counsel at Westwood Capital and a fellow of the Century Foundation. Robert, thank you for joining us. Hey, guys. So great to be with you again. 
Welcome I'm a back. Little, I'm a little fired up about this. It's rare that it's put so plainly, I think. Let me let me tell you a little bit more about what, what is happening at the White House and, and get some thoughts from you. Uh, so sure. the White House yesterday launched a push to contain the political damage of inflation. Uh, uh, they are sort of setting up Joe Biden. It's Joe Biden versus his aides. Biden wants to look more sympathetic and the aides aren't doing a good enough job. Uh, so I guess the issue is they're not doing enough to publicly explain the fastest price increases in roughly 40 years, uh, aiming to demonstrate to the public that it's responding to its concerns. Biden met with Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell in the Oval Office. Of course, he wrote that op-ed in the Wall Street Journal on Monday about inflation, and he has sent aides across major networks to push the administration's economic message. I couldn't find the message anywhere, Robert. I I so <laughs> want to know if you know what this is. The other thing I, I want to ask is, John and I spoke on the show yesterday about the, the independence of the Federal Reserve, which Joe mm-hmm. Biden has been really, um, he, he's been very specific about his respect for the independence of that organization. So h- how is meeting with Jerome Powell actually doing anything you know i mean it's just, I, I get the sort of uh, photo op of it but if your whole point is that the i don't know it's like you you want to look like you're doing something about inflation by meeting with the chair of the reserve that's supposed to be independent of what you think should be done about inflation i don't get yeah. it mm-hmm. yeah so no i think there are kind of four things at work here and i think to some extent the you know the, the wapo uh, piece this morning that i think you're, you're referencing is sort of reflective, I, I think, of a, a bit of frustration on the part of many people in the, in the administration when it comes to how to deal with basically four uh, things. So the first thing I'd note is that, as you guys know, one important piece of the inflation story, anytime there is an inflation, is the expectations component, right? Because inflation can be sort of self-fulfilling or self-accelerating. Mm-hmm. If people, in other words, anticipate more inflation, then they buy sooner rather than later uh, in order to get things at lower prices. But then, you know, increasing the buying activity like that tends to drive prices up even more quickly. So because of that sort of self-fulfilling prophecy element of inflation, so-called inflationary expectations are very important. And I think insofar as these White House officials speaking anonymously we're sort of talking about frustration as to sort of how to communicate that we're being serious about inflation and that we care about it. It's partly about trying to kind of tamp down some of those inflationary expectations, which the Fed itself often does. You remember those kind of famous remarks that people like Greenspan used to make mm-hmm. back when they would make those no remarks. It was all about expectations setting or expectations influencing in with you know with a view to ultimately affecting the inflation rate itself. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, we can cut, I think, Biden a little bit of slack in that there's not a sort of a, a stark divide between the talk about inflation on the one hand and the actual inflation on the other. Mm-hmm. That said, that said, there is, I think, a bit of confusion on the part of many in the administration, but it's not just them. It's also Congress, it's policy wonks, and it's even orthodox economists like Larry Summers. Mm-hmm. When it comes to sort of how to understand how we got where we are right now and how to understand, therefore, the nature of the problem and how to solve it. Right? Mm-hmm. So there's lots of talk about the money side of the money goods equation, right? As we've talked about before, one way to think about inflation is as too much money chasing too few goods. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet there's a tendency for everybody to fixate on the money side of that and to ignore the goods side of that, right? right? In other words, the production side. And this this is a long story. We've talked about it a little bit before. I mean, even mm-hmm. ec- you know economic orthodoxy itself over the last 50 years seems 
seems to have forgotten that there is something that happens in an economy that we call production, right? That the goods that people are buying don't just magically appear like manna from heaven. We produce them. Um, and how much we have, right, that we can spend that money on is very much a function of what we're doing by way of producing. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that the Biden administration kind of dimly understands or is kind of groping for a kind of clear understanding of the importance of production because they'll often talk about how well, the infrastructure bill is going to help get us more production. Right. And you know, we're trying to reindustrialize. That will get us more production. And yet that is so unorthodox now to talk about production at all. And that's a fault of economics, I think, not the, not the rest of us, mm -hmm. that we struggle with how to integrate a production-oriented message on the one hand with a monetary policy message on the other hand, because they've just, they're out of practice when it comes to that. Yeah. So I think a lot of this confusion is that. I know. And you, you end up with sort of gobbledygook because, yeah, we've talked to you more than once about the the deflationary effect that uh, something like a, you know, a, a real infrastructure bill or this massive social spending, which would, of course, involve a bunch of infrastructure as well, that that, that is genuinely a way to affect inflation and bring down inflation. But the administration is not attempting to sell it that way. And I really I I want to ask you in all seriousness what this next sentence means, because I don't understand it. Uh, it, it Biden is, you know, the Washington Post tells us uh, Biden wants his aides to confront the problem directly to show that he understands Americans are suffering. And here's the line. While not announcing any new measures to combat inflation, the White House insisted the American economy is in strong position for the Federal Reserve to tame high prices because high growth and low unemployment create a buffer against future interest rate hikes. And I really don't understand what that's supposed to mean. If rate hikes are the only mechanism for bringing down inflation that anyone is really talking about with any clarity and inflation is still going up, why are we protecting against, you know, do you understand what I mean, Robert? It's the way that this is being discussed is very confusing. No, I fully understand, Michelle, and I think it's 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 quite unfortunate. I think that whoever whoever the White House has chosen to do this messaging is probably him or herself a little bit unclear about the the sort of mechanical relations among all of these distinct elements, and mm -hmm. that's probably what's going on here. What they mean, um, at least if we interpret that kind of strange sentence against the backdrop of a lot of the other discourse underway on the part of central bankers and fiscal policy wonks and so forth right now, mm -hmm. is that the, it's really coming back to that question that we talked about last time, which is, is a recession? inevitable or right. is a recession uh, imminent? So the worry, the, the usual worry with rate hikes is that, well, you know, monetary policy is kind of a blunt instrument. So are we going to kill the patient that we're trying to kind of cure on the operating table here? In other words, in taming inflation, are we simply going to bring its opposite, basically a huge uh, recession problem? The buffer talk is basically aimed at that. It's basically saying, look, we have so many strong fundamentals right now with the employment rate still rising. You probably saw the jobs report today. Mm -hmm. yet more hiring underway with wage growth and salary growth mm -hmm. uh, robust with lots of savings having been saved up during the pandemic, that there's less danger of a recession coming about in response to a rate hike. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, what they're getting at with that buffer. But unfortunately, that was so maladroitly worded, that sentence, that it makes it sound like they're saying we want to we think we can prevent rate hikes because of the fundamentals. Um, they were really, I think, trying to say the opposite. Again, at least if we interpret them in light of what lots of other people are talking about when they use that buffer word right now. I also know I, I, I wanted to return to the topic of Larry Summers and this idea that way, wage growth 
is maybe going to be the next boogeyman, the next thing that uh, people are, are on the bandwagon to bl- to blame for inflation. I wanted to get your thoughts on on that and the, you know, wh- you know, if a recession becoming inevitable, if what we decide the problem is, is workers making too much money. Yeah. So two things to say on that. One is a sort of shorter term thing and one is a longer term thing that kind of reaches back to what we we first started talking about today. Um, so on the short term story here is, you know, this is what I mean, Summers keeps doing this, right? I mean, yeah. over the last six months to nine months, he's been basically demonizing wage growth and salary growth as, as if that were the problem. This, of course, it has two implications, right? The first is it completely ignores the profit component of prices, again, the markup. And we have so much evidence, both anecdotal and more statistically uh, sort of robust evidence, that there's an awful lot of price rising happening right now, or mm-hmm. price raising, I should say, because no need, no need to use passive voice here. Mm-hmm. Active price raising by various firms under cover of inflation, right? The convenient excuse of it. So we really ought to be looking at profits before we look at wages, especially after 50 years of wage decline, right? If anybody um, has to readjust, it shouldn't be workers um, because workers are actually, we're sort of readjusting in the right direction when we're raising their share, which has been declining again steadily since the 70s. Um, And what we ought to do is target capital's share instead. That's to say the small number of very wealthy shareholders uh, in this country. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing that really irks me about this. The second thing is a longer term thing, and it really dovetails with this idea, you know, what I, I'm tempted to call, you know, the incredible missing, uh, the incredible disappearing production element uh, in all economic discourse, right? So again, orthodox economics, of which, of course, Summers is something of an apostle, has completely forgotten that there's a thing called production that we do, right. that a, an economy is for, for the last 50 years. And so in consequence, Anytime he draws a comparison between the present time and something that happened 20 or 30 years ago, mm-hmm. he's basically comparing the present time to another time when we completely forgot about production. So at the very end of that WAPO story that I think you guys were alluding to, mm-hmm. he says, well, you know, every time we've had this particular combination in the recent past uh, of, of interest rates on the one, I'm sorry, of, of inflation rates on the one hand and employment rates on the other, there's always been a recession. Well, what he bloody leaves out there is all of those recent times he's talking about are time in the sort of post-industrial period Mm -hmm. that we brought about thanks to the mistakes of economic orthodoxy, which completely forgot that there's something we do called produce. Um, And so you can't, it, it, it doesn't help to compare the present moment to 20 or 30 or even 40 years ago because if we're saying, okay, the following things are going to happen and we should just let them happen, well, we're basically saying, well, let's let the last 30 or 40 years basically continue on as they've been doing. Mm-hmm. But the real cardinal change that we're sort of, that's beginning to be born right now, but that people are still sort of struggling with how to articulate and conceptualize, is we are actually rediscovering production. Mm-hmm. And in its own sort of inarticulate and not altogether, you know, kind of clear minded or at least clear articulating way, the administration itself seems to understand that, right? You see a lot of references to production and reindustrialization and supply chains yeah. and so forth from the Biden administration people, but they don't have a single coherent story on this that they can stick to like it's a kind of script. That, I think, is their fundamental problem. If they were actually to do that, 
they could basically bring down inflation partly through the expectations channel that we talked about before mm -hmm. and partly, you know, kind of mechanically um, because they actually, if we had a sort of coherent agenda about production, we might actually have more Congress members signing on, mm -hmm. right, who are currently not signing on because they're not really clear what we're trying to do here. No, and it's, but if we, it's always couched in language about competing with China, right? This is what all this, it's like, we have to do this in order to compete. It's all outward facing instead of, you know, hey, maybe there's some benefit to the United States and that can be primary. Yeah, that's the thing. You don't really have to demonize China in saying that, well, we've outsourced most of our production to China. That wasn't China's fault. They just yeah. said, welcome, when American capitalists basically basically re, you know, sort of relocated production over there because the labor was cheaper. Mm -hmm. But that was just a move to get out from under all of the, or get away from, or to sort of uh, do an end run around all of the gains that the labor movement made over the 100 years that culminated in, 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 in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we can blame large transnational American-based firms or corporations and their very wealthy shareholders, I think, for all of what happened in those days, rather than blaming China, which just simply said, yeah, thanks for the investment. Um, and we can say, okay, look, maybe that was a mistake. Maybe it wasn't. It's certainly a mistake to continue with it, at least if we're doing it to the detriment of American working people and American productive capacity. So let's reshore as much production as we can. Let's reindustrialize, but let's do it with respect to the industries of tomorrow that are environmentally friendly, that mm -hmm. are green. Let's basically jumpstart all of that and make that a big national project. Mm -hmm. And we don't have to sort of look at China as an enemy here or even a competitor. We just say we're doing what we need to do. End of story. Mm -hmm. And so I know you've said that some of the some of the blame for this sort of muddled idea about the role of production in in, in taming inflation is lies in economic orthodoxy itself. Right. So I, I want to ask, you know, with that in mind, what do you make of of Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen on CNN yesterday saying, uh, you know, I was wrong then about the path inflation would take. And there have been unanticipated and large shocks to the economy that have boosted energy and food prices and supply bottlenecks that have affected our economy badly that she didn't fully understand at the time, but that she recognizes now. I don't I feel like the administration has not done a very good job of anticipating some things that they they should have been able to anticipate. You know, the the fall of the uh, Afghan um, army, the fall of the Afghan government so quickly after we pulled out, you can maybe say, oh, OK, that that came out of the blue. Uh, th but they were really behind the ball when it came to the supply of covid tests, really behind the ball when it came to the fact that people were going to need more than four <laughs> for a pandemic mm -hmm. that is still not over. And so I wonder you know, I know you're not inside Janet Yellen's head, but I, I also wonder, you know, if these were really so difficult to anticipate or if the reality is that the, the people who are most suffering as a result of this inflation are the people who are generally most allowed to suffer in our economy. And it wasn't necessarily worth it to try to avert it. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, uh, I had a couple of reactions to that. Right? First off, I just thought that it just looked really weird to see uh, Yellen saying this. It felt like a it was a show trial or something mm -hmm. or like it was some sort of, you know, Catholic confession ritual where, you know, you sort of say mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa and yeah. then flagellate your back. I thought she doesn't have to do that or talk that way. There's a very sensible way to say this. And that is um, to say, look, we were calling it transitory when it first began to emerge. It still is transitory. Transitory doesn't mean 15 minutes or, or, or a week or two. Transitory basically means it's going to last until we can get the production fired up again 
and unclog the supply chain mm-hmm. problems, right? And then she can say, look, we did not anticipate some of the secondary and tertiary clogs that have come since we first called inflation trans- transitory, right? We didn't know, for example, that there would indeed be an invasion um, of, of, of Ukraine at this particular mm-hmm. time. We didn't know that there would be another spike in COVID. And sure, maybe we should have anticipated more of that or been a little bit more ready or had a plan B, so to speak, as to what we would do in the event that more things like that happened. But we didn't. And so we'll certainly take the blame for that. But we're not going to retreat from the claim that this is transitory because it is transitory. It's basically going to continue until we get the supply chains unclogged and the production occurring again. But I think in that sense, this is just another instance of that more general phenomenon we were talking about before, which is that orthodox economists and the Biden administration that has a number of them in its administration has not figured out how to even talk about production anymore and the significance of it. They keep trotting out that stupid old Milton Friedman line about inflation being always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And as Mm -hmm. we talked about last time, that is always and everywhere half true because it's always and everywhere a money and goods phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And if we talk just about the Fed, then we're talking just about the money side. And we have to talk about the goods side as well, which is the production side. And I think they're just struggling to figure out how to do that because orthodox economics hasn't really thought about that matter or talked about that matter for over 100 years now. Yeah. The real the real problem began with so-called the so-called marginalist movement uh, in the late 19th century, which turns everything into a distribution story, which is an important story. But you have to have something to distribute. Yes, <laughs> that's <laughs> you what you do. produce. Right? Yeah, you know, and I do think I, I think that that you're right about the element of performance there because it's sort of like in an absence of a of a sort of coherent coherent message and a coherent idea to put forward, what you do is sort of express sympathy and find someone to to pin some blame on, right, to be a public scapegoat. And I think that's, you know, that's that's part of this flurry of events to show that we're taking the problem seriously. That's, you know, not actually mm-hmm. taking it that seriously. I also mm-hmm. want to ask about another um, sort of economic and political issue that is this possibility of forgiving student debt. This has come up again. Uh, The Biden administration is still considering forgiving $10,000 or more worth of student debt. And I, you know, I support this. Right. I think it's great. I I think we have been encouraged. We were really pushed, my generation in particular, but over the last 20 and 30 years, encouraged at every turn to take on this this sort of good debt that included education debt. But, you know, I don't think that people who did that were expecting to graduate into an environment where costs were so high, right? Rent at like $1,800 a month on average, house prices, uh, you know, at $400,000 the median. Um, but uh, I wonder what the point of erasing people's debt right now is. If I haven't heard anything about changing the costs of education, right? I haven't heard anything about making any reform at all to the system that set all this up. So unless the sort of implicit message is, well, maybe fewer people should go to college, like go to go to get a, you know, be a plumber, as I really should have done, as was my dream when I was five years old. I don't know what is I mean, I would like to see this happen, but it again seems like a a really short term solution to to only a political problem and not really the the economic problem that is presented. Such a great question and such a great great way of connecting it to what we were just talking about, right? Basically, you know, what is a, a sort of superficial symbolic measure and what actually addresses the actual underlying problem. So I'm I'm really glad you raised it also because I I'm working on legislation right now, hey. which is exactly about that. 
So here's the thing, right? It seems to me that, yeah, it's a no-brainer that we have to do something to trim down, if not indeed eliminate, all of that accumulated education debt. We have all sorts of evidence, and we've had it for years, that doing that will be tremendously good for the macroeconomy, for economic growth, as well as the well-being of the next generation of, of, of adults, right, entering our, our polity, uh, our, our you know, entering into full citizenship and entering into, into economic activity. Um, but of course, you know, it, it doesn't, we don't solve the problem long term if we don't address the underlying cause of it, which is this crazy escalation of education costs. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that what we need to do is simultaneously, right, in the very same measure in which or through which we strike a bunch of that debt, we also make higher education free or close to free again, as it was until just a few decades ago. Mm -hmm. Now, as you guys know, I'm associated with Cornell University. That's where I'm a, a named or endowed chair professor. And Cornell has the distinction of being New York's land-grant institution. And every state in the union has at least one land-grant institution. These were created by the Land-Grant Act in 1862, simultaneously with the Homestead Act. And the whole idea was to make free higher education and vocational education available to everybody, to literally everybody. And so it seems to me that what we got to do is we can start with those land grant schools and make them free again to all of the people who live in the states where they operate. And we can make, at the very least, vocational education and community college free again as well uh, in order basically to make a massive investment in the next generation of Americans. And it seems to me this has like three effects, right? First, it basically solves the underlying problem that causes the massive debt in the first place, as you just suggested. Mm -hmm. Second, it undercuts one of the usual arguments against reducing college debt, and that is, oh, it's elitist because it only helps those privileged Americans who got to go to school. Well, if we say, well, no, because we're also going to make school available to everybody else, too, then you kind of undercut that argument. And then third, you just have a massively better educated population and workforce, which mm -hmm. is both good for citizenship and political functionality, you know, it's sort of the, the, the functional functioning of a polity on the one hand, and fantastic for the economy, for innovation and production. So it seems to me this is like win, win, win across the board. There's simply no reason not to do it. We did that for decades. Again, it wasn't until the, the 90s that everything began to go to hell in the handcart during the presidency of our favorite Democrat, Bill Clinton. Right. Yes. Well, I hope I hope that legislation gets gets some attention, Robert. It was great to talk to you. Really appreciate your time. That was Robert Hockett. He's a professor of law, professor of public policy at Cornell University. Thanks again, Robert. Thanks so much, Michelle. And thanks again, John. Always great. Good to, to talk you to you. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. It's Wednesday, and that means it's time for Politics Wednesday, where we give you the inside scoop on all the important races taking place around the country. Today, we have updates on the Senate races in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Arizona, as well as the battle inside the Democratic Party between progressives and moderates and a new move by Republicans to declare the 2022 midterms as stolen. 
even before the first vote has been cast. <laughs> We're joined here Talk in the about studio. Anticipating. They're, they're right. on it. <laughs> We're joined by Ray Valencia. Ray is a Sputnik News analyst and the producer of this show. Ray, welcome. Let's begin with Ohio. The Hill this morning had a terrific article um, saying that the Ohio Senate race between J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan is statistically tied. Vance is polling at 41.6% to Ryan's 39.4%. 17% of Ohio voters are undecided. It said that some Republicans are distrustful of Vance because of his attacks on other Republicans in the primary race. You remember the fist fight during the, mm-hmm. uh, the debate, the Republican debate. debate. And uh, Ryan is being pulled down by Joe Biden's unpopularity in Ohio. Ryan, Ryan is a proven campaigner. Right. Mm. He's been in Congress for 20 years. He's very much a Joe Manchin kind of Democrat, Mm -hmm. very solid support from organized labor. But Ohio, over the last several cycles, has been trending Republican. So where do you think the race goes from here? Neither one of these candidates is anywhere near that magic number of 50 percent. Well, you know, Vance is is a really uh, kind of a divisive candidate. I don't yes. think the Stop the Steal campaign is really effective for Republicans at the end of the day because it really undermines the confidence of voters right. that you can rely on government to do anything. Yeah. We learned that in Georgia when, when Donald Trump said, uh, don't bother to vote because it's fixed and people didn't vote and they elected two Democrats to the U.S. Senate. But what's really interesting to me is if you step back a bit and look at this more like philosophically, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? Because isn't it the Republicans that have been so successful in dismantling the idea that government can do anything effective, Right. right? That politicians can actually, you know, be guided by a moral compass and do something productive and pass legislation that benefits people. The Republicans mm-hmm. have been really good at dismantling the idea that government can do anything, right? Yes, yes. I think Reagan was the one that started this idea. Yes, I mean, he, government is the problem. It's not the solution it's to the problem. It's not the solution, right? So they're going, it's just so ironic. They're, they're doing it to themselves, right? Yeah. So these races are so close, right? You get to the end, like we saw this in Georgia, during the runoff, $450 million, and Warnock won by 50,000 votes, mm-hmm. and I'm sorry, Warnock won by 100,000, Ozoff won by 50,000. Mm-hmm. So if you get just a few Republicans to stay home in Ohio or any other state because yeah, they don't have confidence in the system. Literally a few, because we're talking about thousands of individual precincts. Mm-hmm. So if one person stays home in each neighborhood, in each precinct, right. It flips the race. And it's a dangerous game to be playing if you're in the GOP because there are two big issues now on the ballot. Abortion and guns. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That is right. Well, in Pennsylvania, um, the Republican nominee still hasn't been chosen. Mm, Right. There there was a development yesterday. Only 770 votes separate Dr. Mehmet Oz and David McCormick. McCormick filed a suit last week um, asking that the court order the counting of ballots, absentee ballots that were signed but not dated. And Oz has countersued. Uh, saying the rules are the rules and the rules say that the ballot has to be both signed and dated. Yesterday, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito um, put a stay 
on the ballot count, saying nobody can count any ballots, right, until the lower court works this out. And over the weekend, Dr. Oz declared himself the presumptive nominee. So he's now not, he really wants to be pres- like Donald yeah. Trump, right? And, and this is what Trump was urging him mm-hmm. to do, just declare victory and, and, and act like you've won. Um, this race truly is a fight between the mainstream GOP, which supports McCormick, mm-hmm. and the Trump GOP, which supports Oz. Either way, whoever wins, they have a daunting challenge in John Fetterman. And the latest polls, not only the latest polls, show Fetterman winning by 20 percentage points. But um, CNN has this as the number one Senate race most likely to flip from one party to oh, the other. Oh, I think so, too. Pennsylvania, we've been saying this, too. Yeah. Uh, where you have a governor and a senator on the ballot, that's going to increase turnout. Absolutely. Okay, so that's another factor. Yeah. So, and, you know, this thing about the Supreme Court and the counting the ballots, it's just what... The question is the ballots that did not have the date on them, right? On the back of the envelope. Right. I mean, what other election, what other date could they have possibly been voting on? And I mean, you know what? And, it's and just the Oz so people, outrageous. The Oz people don't even care, right? The Oz people are saying that they're ahead by 770. That's good enough. A win is a win is a win. And so they can only lose if these ballots are counted. So they don't want to count a single one of them. And oh, their I position the is strategy, but I'm talking about from the perspective of the voter. Okay? Oh, from the perspective of the voter. Of and course. from what I heard on NPR, federal law says that, you know, unless it's unreasonable that, you know, a reasonable um, fix to it. The voters' ballot mm-hmm. should be counted. Yeah, now, Georgia, who's under so much criticism for their, you know, strict voting rules, if there's a problem with a ballot, a voter has time, they're notified, and they have time to repair it. Oh, So why not call the less than a thousand people yeah. and ask them, what date did you intend to put on your vote by mail ballot? Yeah. Wouldn't that cost less money than all the lawyers oh, and very interesting. climbing up the Supreme Court tree and all this stuff? I actually like that. It's just that. outrageous. Georgia, you just mentioned. So Senator Raphael Warnock is calling for a series of three debates mm-hmm. against Republican nominee Herschel Walker. Walker has trouble stringing five words together to form a coherent sentence. Well, I want to wait and see and talk and I don't know what he's saying. Yeah, nobody knows what he's saying. <laughs> And then Mitch McConnell comes out and says, oh, I spoke to him in a private meeting and he's the real deal. Like, what are you talking about? So when asked about the Uvalde school shooting, I mentioned this yesterday. He said, and this is so far my favorite quote in uh, in politics this year. They said, well, what do you think about the Uvalde school shooting? And he said, I would have to look at that and things and stuff. That's that's what he said. Because he cannot put two sentences together to express a thought. Oh, no, this nice. is a great campaign strategy on the part of Warnock because Herschel's not going to debate Warnock. He can't. He can't debate. He's get He'll COVID. ruin himself. He's going to trip. Something's going to happen. He can't show up. Or they're just going to say we're not doing this and they're going to try to run the bunker campaign. And that's why I think that that the big issue here is going to be Joe Biden. Because if things continue to get worse economically, 
that's going to cause Warnock problems. I don't think Warnock has a problem in Herschel Walker. There were two polls that re- were released mm-hmm. in the last couple of days. The Hill shows Walker winning, Herschel Walker winning mm-hmm. 4945. Mm-hmm. But a poll by WXIA of Atlanta, television station Atlanta, shows Warnock winning 50 to 45. So I'm wondering what you think Donald Trump's fight with Governor Brian Kemp will have on the Senate race and on turnout, because I think this this all comes down to turnout. It if the really Democrats is. are more motivated, yeah. Warnock's going to win. And this is the game that progressives need to play, right? Regardless of where you're at, whether the state's purple or red or whatever the district is, mm-hmm. it's because you got to get more of your people out there than the other guy. This stop the steal, the the um, incompetent candidate, that's a voter suppressor. Yes. OK. And then you have um, Stacey Abrams at the top of the ticket. Yes. There's going to be so much federal money coming in because it's a competitive Senate race. And then all the money coming in because, you know, got the governor on the ticket. Mm-hmm. I just don't know. Even with Biden, with his low opinion polls, I I think that the Democrats have a, a, an opportunity to gain a lot of momentum, especially when the final decision on Roe v. Wade drops, because, uh, yeah. you know, a lot of uh, your um, African-Americans that are church going African-Americans, they're not necessarily all 100% pro-life, you know, a lot of them are pro-choice. Yes, right. A lot of the white evangelicals are more pro-life. Yes. That's your more your Trumpian people. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I think even though Joe Biden is a real problem, remains a problem for Democrats, uh, that there is a chance. Um, the big thing for Joe Biden is stop endorsing candidates that are working against your agenda. Seriously. OK, that may help him. Yeah. He's got to that do something also about will inflation. help the, the uh, Democrats on the ticket. I don't know. What can Joe Biden do about inflation? What, what is the solution well, that Republicans have? In, the, in our morning yeah. editorial meeting that uh, a new poll in Arizona shows that 97 percent mm-hmm. of Arizona voters say inflation is the biggest issue in mm-hmm. the election this mm-hmm. year. And, uh, you know, we've got a, a very hot Senate race in Arizona. We have hero astronaut. Literally, Mark it's Kelly. hot and you're going to have to run that air conditioner a lot and your energy bill is going to go up. And people, yeah, I can see why inflation in Arizona would be a top yeah. voter issue. So Mark Kelly mm-hmm. is the incumbent senator. He is, uh, we don't know who he's running against yet because they haven't had their primary. But the latest polls show Kelly beating State Attorney General Mark Burnovich, 45-39. Kelly beating Air Force Major Mick McGuire, 44-35. And Kelly beating hedge fund functionary and aide to Peter Thiel, Blake Masters, 44-35. Kelly is relatively popular in the state, um, but these polls show him short of that magic 50%, 50% number. In the meantime, I keep getting these automated text messages from the Kelly campaign. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to smack Bob Schley-Huber okay. for putting my cell phone number <laughs> oh, out no. there. I am bombarded by political campaigns. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, he's saying that his internal polls show him losing by two percentage points. I don't believe that. Uh, that's a fundraising ploy. But CNN says this is actually a close race, and it's unusual for an incumbent senator to not be at the 50% mark. 
What do you think? Well, he's a kind of a not quite incumbent, wasn't he? He got he came in in special election, yeah, right? Special election, and then this is his run for a full term. Yes, and. You know, I think, again, we're talking about this guns are going to be on the ballot. Uh, Kelly has a very interesting background. His wife, Gabby Giffords, right. was shot. Shot uh, in the head. Shot in the head. Uh, this is a, an issue that's very sensitive, I would imagine, for Democrats in Arizona. That's right. Um, I think, and, and he's very likable. He's a he's a great he's guy. He's smart and he's likable. And he's wildly popular on Capitol Hill. He treats people with respect. Mm-hmm. He's friendly. He's into constituent services. Everybody seems to love the guy. Yeah. I don't know. I think if he can get through the primary, he's mm-hmm. a he could be a winner in the general. Well, uh, he I has no primary um opponent. Opponents, right. But, but yeah, uh, when he gets yeah, to the general, to the yeah, general, that's the yeah. I mean, that's going to be. Mm. So I want to ask because immigration's you, a big thing, right? Because immigration's Arizona, huge. Immigration's going to be on the ballot. Yeah. yeah. I want to ask you about this fight between Democratic progressives and um, and centrists that the Democratic leadership has been supporting. You know, we saw it in this race in Texas between Cuellar and. Um, Cisneros. Oh, yeah. This and, and is we don't a know who won that race, that race our, yet. Yeah. It, the race hasn't been decided. It was from a week ago yesterday. This is just driving me nuts as a progressive. It's like you had Democratic leadership in there endorsing him. Super PAC money yeah. behind him. He's a pro-life, mm-hmm. pro-NRA Democrat. Mm-hmm. And Joe Biden, Michelle pointed this out the other day. He's on the campaign trail talking about how gun reform Gun laws are like an emergency. And then now that he's in office, right? Yeah. Now that he's in office, there's nothing, there's nothing I can do. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. nothing I right. can do. And then endorses the, a guy that's going to, you know, be even more, you know, it's going to be like Joe Manchin, right? He's the congressional version of Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, I mean, this is outrageous. I think the Democrats, if they had any sense, they'd, they'd put their money behind the people that voters want, you look at what voters are, the concerns that voters have, you know, fund the candidates that have a chance in the general. There's this yeah. miss. I think we got to wrap fallacy. it up, guys. I'm we got to take our break. But yes, but the fund the candidates that the people's want is a good place. Yes. That the people want is a good place to end it. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back. Still on Radio Sputnik, still live in D.C. Stay tuned. Back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Ukraine's parliament yesterday dismissed the country's ombudsman for human rights, Ludmila Denisova, saying that she had failed to fulfill her obligations to facilitate humanitarian corridors and to counter the deportation of Ukrainians to Russian territory. She was also accused of making unfounded and unverifiable statements about Russian troops committing sex crimes and crimes against children. A group of 90 Ukrainian journalists and 50 other professionals had written a letter to Parliament asking that Denisova be removed. Meanwhile, cracks are beginning to form in the Western alliance against Russia, with Switzerland announcing that it would no longer send weapons to Ukraine and the German Parliament engaging in a heated debate over whether or not to send advanced weapons systems to Kiev. 
In the U.S., the Uvalde, Texas Police Department said that it would not cooperate with the Justice Department investigation of its conduct during the recent school shooting. And the police admitted yesterday that their earlier statement that a teacher had propped open a door at the back of the school was simply not true. We're joined by Aaron Good. Aaron is a political scientist and host of the American Exception podcast on Patreon. He's the author of American Exception, Empire and the Deep State. That's published by Skyhorse. Aaron, welcome back. It's always good to have you. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks. Thanks for doing this. Hey, let's start with a propaganda battle that we're seeing surrounding the Ukraine war. It seems to me that the best way to win the information war is to let the facts speak for themselves. The truth always comes out eventually anyway, even if it might take a little time sometimes. And in wartime, there's no reason to lie about what's happening because the truth is usually ugly enough to convince people. So why do you think the ombudsman would talk about things like systemic rapes and the sex abuse of children without any evidence what's to be gained? I mean, eventually, as I said, the truth is going to come out. Right. Well, the truth does come out in some ways in, in in wars. I mean, eventually you cannot lie about the conditions on the battlefield forever. And that has, to me, seemed like a real problem from the very start with this, uh, with, with the beginning of this invasion operation, whatever you want to call it. Um, because they would, on paper, it doesn't seem like Ukraine should really be able to hold off the uh, military of its much larger nuclear armed neighbor, uh, even with a, with a large amount of uh, weapons from NATO. And so the, the reporting in that way has been strange. And the reports on atrocities, which you're referencing here with this uh, woman who, who eventually is being forced to step down from this position um, because of her uh, exaggerated, false, outright fabricated claims of, of mass rapes. I mean, let's be candid about this in any war there's always going to be atrocities uh committed by all sides Mm -hmm. but best i can tell and all of this is really you know uh i gotta throw in the caveat here of like we not having perfect information at all but it does not seem that the russians have been systematically committing mass atrocities like the you know the destruction of uh, whole cities and civilian and the targeting of civilian populations and these kind of rapes and so this really just fits a pattern of demonizing the other side, like saying uh, Saddam Hussein threw babies out of incubators or Gaddafi right. was giving his soldiers Viagra so that they could do more raping. Right. Or uh, So this is this seems to be of a piece with that. And it, what's interesting is why they're backing down, because this comes at the same time that you're starting to hear more realistic reports about what's going on on the battlefield. And it makes me wonder if more elements of the U.S. establishment who might be totally even on board with U.S. hegemony and imperialism in general are realizing that the economic effects that this could have on Europe are bad enough that it could endanger U.S.-European relations and that the the threat that closing off China and Russia, Russia especially, but, you know, trying to somehow contain China as well, that this could end up damaging, you know, U.S. dollar hegemony as mm-hmm, well, and that mm-hmm. perhaps they're trying to do some damage control and eventually realize that they're going to need to get a settlement to this dispute at some point because they're, they're not going to be able to win on the battlefield. Oh, I think you're 100 percent right. We've already seen um, chinks in the armor of the U.S. dollar 
We've seen Kuwait uh, working with China, for example, to uh, to carry out an oil uh, deal for Yuan. We've seen the Saudis talking to the Chinese and uh, and discussing payment in Yuan. This is exactly what the United States has been fearful of since the 1970s. And we're putting ourselves in a position, in an economic position, where it might just be impossible to maintain this economic hegemony and to maintain the international dominance of the dollar. We're spending so much on war and on, on implements of war, whether for ourselves or for the Ukrainians, you know, our defense budget is bigger than the next eight largest countries combined. And it's a, uh, it's, it's an untenable position. Eventually there has to be some sort of an economic reckoning. We just can't do this forever. Well, the, the one thing to keep in mind here to understand, and that is, this is really something that is not taught to people in the mass media or in economics classes or anywhere, really the status of the dollar has made it possible for the U.S. to run huge military, you know, deficits, largely because of military spending, but also cutting taxes for the rich, you know, also impacts this. But the fact that the dollar was treated as reserves for other countries, so it had this status as the reserve currency, meant that the inflation or other problems that would normally be caused by running <clears throat> such huge deficits, that all got exported to the rest of the world and sort of shared with the rest of the world. So the entire world, by being on the dollar, is essentially financing these huge U.S. budget deficits. Mm -hmm. So it's whether they're spending too much money on the military or whatever, these things in the past didn't matter. Iraq was a huge boondoggle, Afghanistan, so on, huge deficits year after year. But the fact that it is imperiling the status of the dollar means that that era may be coming to an end. Uh, and this is I, I just have to wonder how many people, policymakers, are like actually on some level like not aware of how fragile and historically unusual, really unprecedented, this U.S. position with the dollar vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world economy is. And I write about this in the book. It's uh, in the, my book that's coming out in a few weeks, but I've been going on about this for years. The tragedy of the, what the U.S. did with this position where we really had just essentially infinite money to spend how we wanted, and yet we, we as a rule, have this elite strata that runs things that would never allow this to be used to solve social problems. And so now, with that, this, now people are finally learning more about the dollar. This is more in conversations now and the, like, the Rumpelstiltskin dollar system that we've more or less put in place uh, since 1971. And by the time people grasp it, it may enough people grasp it for it to like perhaps even impact the public debate. It's going to be as the end of U.S. Uh, unipolarity is ending. Let me ask you about what appear to be these cracks in the uh, in the alliance, the pro-Ukraine alliance. It seems like we're not even really sure of the most basic positions anymore. Joe Biden called for regime change in Russia a few months ago, and then yesterday he said he has no interest in regime change. He said two days ago that he would not send offensive missiles to Ukraine, and then this morning said that he would if the Ukrainians promised not to uh, fire them into Russia. Uh, the Swiss said a few months ago that they would send Ukraine weapons, and now they say they won't send Ukraine weapons. The Germans said that they would send state-of-the-art systems, and now they're sending crappy used armored personnel carriers through the Greeks, no less. 
What exactly are we seeing here? You know, Congress is talking, they're debating another $700 million in aid. This is what, a week after we sent the $40 billion. Yeah, and can I jump in? Please. I, this was, I believe, on the Wall Street Journal podcast this morning talking about this this very topic and saying Germany has sent, in terms of military aid, I mean, Germany has, uh, his like, done a whole revision of its own uh, defense budget, yes. right? So that's very consequential. But in terms of military aid that it sent to Ukraine, at least the journal's figure was uh, the equivalent of 200 million euros, Right which I feel like is worth its own conversation just as a reminder of who is really paying for this. Yeah. It is the American. It's the American people. Yes. Right. Even Without if you doubt. don't, even if you don't believe that what we have is just a big pot of money that we're, you know, physically dipping our hands into and pulling out a coin, we're paying for this in the sense that, you know, it, it will be used as a reason why we can't have the, the sort of social things that Americans want. And I think that's really important uh, to, to recall as well. Agreed. So well, what do you what do you think we're seeing here, Aaron? Are you seeing are, are we seeing governments in Western Europe that just have had enough? I it, there there are probably a number of factors for this. I think that it's obvious that this is a real disaster for Western Europe, an economic disaster, because Russia supplies them with energy, especially and other raw materials and the U.S., for, because it wants to maintain its hegemony, is trying to shut off Russia from the rest of the economy. I mean, these plans to like sell liquefied natural gas to Germany seem insane. They're going to be so much more expensive. They have to be further refined and shipped to um, get, to make it to Germany. It just seems like it's going to be a disaster for the German economy. And you know this, but this goes back very far in U.S. and British strategic thinking. George Friedman, the guy that runs Stratfor, he, he spoke around 2014, around the time that the original Ukraine coup took place. And he said that the, the main goal of, of U.S. and Anglo foreign policy, over which two world wars have been fought, is to uh, prevent the alliance of Germany and Russia. Because with Germany's uh, industrial power and Russia's raw materials and, and big population, uh, together Russia and Germany would be uh, able to create a counterforce to U.S. hegemony. Well, this and so this, I think this thinking is still in play and it kind of makes sense when you think of what is the logic of what, what the U.S. and Germany uh, have been doing vis-a-vis -vis Russia. But also now with China in the mix, it's really uh, it doesn't seem that the U.S. can maintain its position from, you know, in between two oceans of running the rest of the world in this huge landmass that is, you know, Europe, Asia and mm -hmm. Africa that it was a number of strange circumstances that allowed the U.S. to run this for so long and that it, it requires a huge amount of chicanery, shenanigans, covert foreign policy crimes and coups carried out all over the world. Uh, you know, even in even in Europe, even in places like Australia, you have Gladio in Europe all throughout yep. the Cold War and you yep. have uh, overthrew the government of Australia in 1975 and mm -hmm. all this stuff in the third world. It's just an unnatural position that the U.S. has run. And Europe is now right in the middle of America attempting to uh, forcibly maintain these strange, these unusual economic relations and just cut off a huge chunk of the world's landmass from the global economy with Russia and then maybe China, too. Right. It's just what the U.S. wants is crazy. I, I agree. 
Hey, I want to uh, change topics just a little bit and ask you about censorship or self-censorship in the media. Minara Adley, who we've had on the show, uh, she's the founder of Mint Press News. She tweeted two BBC articles side by side about a demonstration in Jerusalem. And in one article, the journalist wrote about groups of Jewish demonstrators chanting death to Arabs and accosting the BBC camera crew. But in a subsequent version of the same article, there was no mention at all of the chanting. There was no mention of Israeli police removing peaceful Palestinians from the neighborhood. And it called Israeli violence, quote, boisterous chanting and dancing, unquote. Why would a major outlet like the BBC do something like that? What are they afraid of? Why can't or why won't they simply just report on an event the way it happened? Why the censorship? Well, I think that Israel occupies in the Anglo-American establishment a, a very special place. And a, a, an obvious part of this is an Israel lobby that's very strong in England and the U.S. This is uh, well documented by people like John Mearsheimer yep. and Stephen Walt in uh, the, their book, The Israel Lobby and U.S. Foreign Policy. And there's also an Al Jazeera documentary that was made and then censored about the about the Israel lobby and its influence and people uh, that are members of the lobby bragging about how much power they have. But there's also the fact that which gives it, I think, extra salience. And these two things feed off each other. It's the geopolitical significance of Israel for the Anglo-U.S. Uh, project of uh, maintaining hegemony over the Middle East. So. Israel, whenever they, whenever the U.S. wanted somebody bombed or something, or maybe Israel sometimes does these things against U.S. wishes a little bit or against part of the wishes of the U.S. elite. But like, they'll attack. They'll they're bombing Syria as we, you know, perhaps right mm -hmm. now they've been yeah. doing that recently. Sure, uh, they attacked Iraq over the years. They're assassinating Iranians, uh, Iranian scientists. And it's notable that Saudi Arabia and Israel are working towards like normalizing relations because that just really shows you a lot about the way that those two are kind of two sides of the same coin uh, in, in many ways in terms of their having these pretty odious regimes. But because they are backed by the global hegemon, the United States, they're able to carry on year after year committing all sorts of, of atrocities and such. It's... Um, it, it, and so the media, you know, the BBC is state media, and <clears throat> they reflect the line of the of the British establishment, often with a, a little bit of a liberal-ish spin. But I mean, let, there's nothing liberal or progressive or left-wing about no. imperialism ad nauseum. And so the liberalism of MSNBC or BBC or NPR is is completely uh, a fake affectation. And uh, uh, kind of sinister when you look at the pretty hard right wing views that underpin U.S. imperialism and the policies of, say, uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia pretty mm -hmm. much all the time. Yep. Agreed. Let's talk about the situation in Uvalde. Um, as it turns out, almost everything that the police have told us about the attack on the elementary school has been untrue. Everything. The police response to the shooting was cowardly, and that's not my word, that's the Justice Department's word. And they're still lying about the way things played out. Now they're refusing to cooperate with a federal investigation, which incidentally could also be a crime. I saw an interview uh, with the Uvalde um, uh, 
police chief this morning on CNN. Actually, it wasn't an interview. It was the CNN uh, journalist tracking him down in the uh, parking lot. And uh, the guy just escaped back into the building through a side door. He wouldn't answer any questions. Uh, There are so many questions here. Let's start with lessons learned. What have we learned about confronting a school shooter? We were told that there was a right way and there was a wrong way. Uvalde police were trained in the right way and they just stood outside for as long as 70 minutes while this guy slaughtered children inside. Right. I find this situation totally baffling. I do not understand what the police officers were thinking. It's especially given that they were trained in this way. um, It was a it, it seems implausible that it was pure cowardice because it's hard to imagine some people, a group of people being this cowardly, but I don't really have an alternative explanation for it. Yeah. It, it, it's, it is completely baffling. And I, I think that if, if any, we have probably haven't seen the last of these. I think that this student, the person, how old was the shooter that did it? Had he he recently graduated? Yeah, he was 18. As somebody who was, teaching high school until, uh, you know, shortly after I finished my doctorate. Um, it, it's the damage psychologically that was done to these students because of the two years of like quarantine, I think are hard to quantify. And we don't really know at this point what that has been. There were school shooters before these things, but after two years of these, this weird social isolation and uh, ampl- even social media became even more significant during this time, which is really bad. Mm-hmm. So people that have are struggling in high school and with their adolescence, it's worse right now. And so that may have some impact, but hopeful on, on why that something like this could happen now, but you're talking about one individual, of course, but, but maybe the impact in the long run will be that it will force people to actually confront the fact that the police are not at this point, always prepared to do what they need to do. And hopefully there will be a better response the next time something like this happens. I mean, you don't want to admit that there's going to be a next time, but let's be real. This is America. and mm-hmm. There's a lot of guns and a lot of social pathologies that, that produce these, these kind of individuals. And Seriously. so I, one would hope that the next time around people will learn from this and not do what these terrible, <laughs> cowardly individuals did in Texas, which I'm told that it's Texas like. How could you show I your know, face right? in Texas? It's yeah. supposed to be the macho man. Right, right. And then I, I mentioned yesterday on the show that the that the spokesman from the from the Texas uh, Public Safety Commissioner's Office said, well, it was dangerous. They could have gotten shot. <laughs> it's like, well, right. are you kidding me? So what do you think this means on a on a broader scale, a national scale vis-a-vis the gun debate? There are at least six Republican House members as of this morning who say they are willing to vote in favor of an assault weapon ban, which we actually had for several years in the 1990s. But in the Senate, Democrats would need to cobble together 60 votes to overcome a filibuster. Uh, Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, seems to think that he can do that with some time for negotiation. What are your thoughts? Do you think it's possible? I would guess that it would be difficult to get past a filibuster in the Senate. Yeah. The Senate is a ridiculous institution. Uh, it's completely undemocratic and allows for a, a small minority of the U.S. population to uh, control the U.S. political system. And uh, because of a number of factors, that typically always ends up benefiting the right wing mm-hmm. of the United States. So I don't 
I would not guess that he will be able to do it. It would be uh, quite astounding if he were to get rid of the filibuster now after not doing that earlier, um, because this would be, you know, to do it over a, a kind of a cultural, not a cultural issue, but something besides the economy and foreign policy, yeah. which seems those, those two issues seem to be where there's the bipartisan consensus by and large. And then since the Democrats are kind of owned by those forces, they don't really, even if the, even if a, a technical majority is, is for better economic policies or better foreign policies, uh, it doesn't matter because the filibuster, you know, kind of gives them something to hide behind. Yeah. So I, you know, whether they'll be able to get that through, I would guess that they're not going to be because for the Republicans, this is a very super salient issue. A big part of their constituency really loves guns. And with the uh, sort of the, the events, the problems that we're facing in America with American decline and, and social problems, it, one effect that that is having on the right is that they are clutching their guns even tighter, it seems. I mean, mm -hmm. there just have been a lot more gun sales and ammo sales, right? And, uh, you know, I'm, I can actually understand why people think that, the, you know, guns would be necessary to deal with a sort of tyrannical regime. But I would I would have that position coming from the left, not from the right wing, uh, of, you know, white nationalist perspective. And yet the, the arguments for gun control are all very reasonable as well. So I would guess they're going to all that aside, I would guess they're going to have a difficult time getting this through Republicans who will be staunchly opposed to uh, more gun control. Yeah, I think you're you're right. You know, somebody tweeted today uh, that. Uh, that he urged every African-American um, who doesn't have a gun to go out and buy one, specifically buy an AR-15. And then we'll see how long it takes the Senate to ban assault weapons, because it, it'll it'll come right quick if something like that were to happen. Aaron, in our last few minutes, I've got to ask you about the Sussman trial. You know, we've been talking about it a lot here on the show. And now that it's over, uh, I'm even more confused than I was uh, just as it was starting. Michael Sussman was found not guilty yesterday of lying to the FBI uh, when he passed them the Steele dossier, saying that he was just a concerned citizen and not a representative of the Clinton campaign. In fact, not only was he the Clinton campaign's attorney, but he charged the Clinton campaign for his time speaking with the FBI. Uh, the funny thing is that two jurors said that this was an easy decision to acquit, that the only reason they took six hours to acquit him was that they took a, a two hour lunch break. Otherwise, it would have been four hours. Was this a reflection, do you think, on the FBI, on the Justice Department, on John Durham? Was this a show of support for Hillary Clinton? How did this happen? Well, we there's a good chance we'll probably never know everything behind it. I haven't followed the trial closely enough to know if the prosecution in any way sort of pulled their punches when prosecuting this fellow. It does seem like he pretty clearly broke the law as it is a, a understood to be. Uh, as I understand it, the lying to the FBI thing has been taken up by the Supreme Court at different times. And uh, it, it's even people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg argued against the legality of any kind of, you know, law like this in the first place. So the law itself of lying to the FBI, that being illegal, is problematic. So it's hard for me on principle to think that this is a, his acquittal is a, is a terrible thing. However, 
in this case, he was lying to the FBI to avoid, I mean, for really nefarious purposes, which is to further uh, a cover up or obstruct justice about uh, really criminal activity. I would, I think of the of the uh, Clinton campaign, right. or at least very unethical activity. And uh, this this RussiaGate hoax was a disaster for U.S. politics. But it was a it was a success for I think the people behind it, which are American deep state actors, and that's why I don't think that there'll ever be justice with this. I, I think that it's actually the pinnacle of power in the U.S. that was behind RussiaGate, and that's why it was all over the media. And the president couldn't even do any. The president of the United <laughs> States was powerless to stop a, an intelligence community hoax from really damaging his rep, his uh, administration. I mean, whatever you think of, of of Trump, this is really the case. And uh, so what do we, how, how can we expect this to be prosecuted if it really is the seat of power? It also brings to my mind a couple of other issues with the jury trials today in this, in this area where we have so much mass surveillance of everything and they know so much about everybody. The tech companies connect all, collect mm -hmm. all this data. Mm -hmm. They're arms of the state. You know, can, can you get a jury pool? If you, it, could you rig it so that they're on any jury pool for something like this, you're, it's going to be easy to know who is a super partisan Democrat Russiagate cultist <laughs> and make sure that there's a couple of them on the on the jury. I, I mean, I don't put that out of the realm of possibility at all. And, and if it didn't happen here, it's something that could happen very easily in jury trials and criminal proceedings yeah. down the road. We are are not ready to deal with the, pro the threats posed to our democracy by, such as it is, uh, by, you know, mass surveillance and the marriage of big tech and the national security state and the criminal justice system, of course, as a part of that. It's this this is a this case should be alarming to people for a number of reasons. Let's just say totally agree. Totally agree. Um, when is the book coming out? It's just a few weeks from now, is it not? Yes. Uh, first day of summer. Uh, and the audiobook I think, comes out uh, in less than a week. So uh, it's going to be available very soon. Fantastic. Well, best of luck with it, Aaron Good. Aaron is a political scientist and host of the American Exception podcast on Patreon. Pre-order his book. It's called American Exception, Empire and the Deep State, and it's published by Skyhorse. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we're talking a little bit more about plastic, the substance around which the public was told some of the biggest recycling lies in recent decades. Uh, you, I'm sure you saw a couple years back, PBS did that expose mm -hmm. on plastic recycling yep. and, and, you know, what, what a, a lie it all was. So it basically plastic producers said, no, no, no. Hey, it's cool. We can keep producing this stuff and we can keep making single use plastics because we'll recycle it. Right. They were lying. They, at least according to these exposés, they, they never really intended to because it's complicated and it costs too much to be worth it to them. And so we continue to have lots and lots of plastic in our lives, but 
now what we have is at the state level, at least, some efforts to, again, put the onus back on manufacturers to figure out what to do with the packaging they produce. And so here to get into uh, some of these measures and maybe talk a little bit about greenwashing at the highest levels is Tina Landis. She's an environmental and social activist and the author of the book Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism. Tina, thank you for joining us again. Thanks for having me. Uh, before we talk about the new laws, I just wondered if you wanted to, um, you know, summarize the sort of plastic recycling debacle that I was alluding to to start with. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge, huge problem. Only five to six percent of um, plastics are ever what is considered recycling, which I can talk about more later. Mm-hmm. Um, and plastics are everywhere in our environment. They're in the air, they're in the water, they're in the rain and snow. They're, you know, in our bodies yeah. at this point. You know, it's it's so prevalent. 83 pounds per person per year of plastics are produced now. And it's like insane amounts go into the ocean, 22 tons every minute go into the oceans. And, you know, it's been, and plastic production has really ramped up recently or in the last, you know, few decades since it was the inception of plastic in 1907, more than half of the plastics produced have been produced just in the last 15 years. Yeah. The big increase in production of this very toxic materials that are, that basically stay in the environment for centuries. There's no way to get rid of them because they're not natural. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, and it's, it's a, it's a huge problem and really, you know, it just needs to end. <laughs> yeah. And we're, we are constantly hearing about these, you know, microbes that supposedly will eat the plastic and this will be the, the solution. But I don't know. I, I do think, you know, sometimes, Sometimes there's not a technological solution for this stuff. Um, right. Let's talk about these laws. So this NPR did a story on this. Apparently, Maine, Oregon and Colorado in the last year have passed uh, what are termed extended producer responsibility laws on packaging, meaning producers have to pay for the recycling of what they generate. And now New York State is considering a similar law. And the laws break down like this. Uh, they would apply to... Companies like beverage companies, shampoo makers, food manufacturers, and others, they will have to keep track of how much of each sort of packaging they use. The producers will then reimburse government recycling programs for handling their waste, either directly or through a consortium. Fees will be lower for companies that use easily recyclable, compostable, or reusable packaging. This is supposed to incentivize them to adopt sustainable practices. And then recycling centers will use the money that they get to cover their operating costs, invest in new equipment, and expand outreach. And so on one hand, it looks like, you know, it is nice to see a sort of achievable state-level goal, you know, and a state level solution to a direct problem to try to hold producers accountable for the materials they make. On the other hand, it does still fall to people to sort their recycling and then for states to actually do it. And I think a lot of people don't have a lot of trust that that recycling is actually happening the way they're told it is. And so, you know, what, what do you think of these laws and of their potential to make change? Yeah, I don't I don't see a lot of uh, hope in these laws. You know, it's these companies oftentimes when you when you impede them with fines and fees and things like that, it's just passed on to the consumer. It's squeezed squeezed from their workers wages. Um, And it's such a huge problem. (laughs) The Mm -hmm. overall production of plastic, you know, the U.N. said that plastic pollution is actually the second biggest threat to humanity after climate change. Mm -hmm. 
because of all the greenhouse gases in the production process. And then what happens usually is incineration of it at the end, um, which is equal to like 500 coal-fired plants a year. It's insane. So, so these minor regulation changes or these minor law legislative measures, like, aren't going to, are barely going to put a dent into it, even if it is effective in any way. It's such a major global problem. Um, I mean, it's good people are trying to address it, but there's always loopholes for corporations. There's always, you know, they'll just, they'll just add this into their budgets, their annual operating costs of these fees and Mm -hmm. that, because it'll still be cheaper to produce, you know, it's always cheaper with fossil fuels because they're highly subsidized. These plastics are made from fossil fuels. It will be continue to be cheaper, you know, mm-hmm. if subsidies continue and corporations under capitalism, you know, it's always about maximizing profits and lowering production costs. Mm-hmm. And they'll find a way to balance that out, even with these minor, you know, regulations against against plastic production. And the other thing that gives me pause is that you learn later in the story that there's a bunch of corporate support for the plan. Right. So uh, General Mills, Coca-Cola, ExxonMobil uh, have endorsed the idea through this group called the Recycling Partnership. Uh, as long as producers maintain some control over the fees and targets in the new system uh, and NPR, which notes in the story that it gets a bunch of funding from Exxon, uh, quoted a spokesman for the group saying, like, how, how could you possibly run a system of this scale without getting input from these producers? And, you know, I, I wonder how much merit you think is in that argument that you have to you have to include the industries or the companies that you intend to regulate in your efforts to regulate them. Right. This is the problem. Capitalism, yeah. right? There's no there's no government control over industry. It's like industry always has to be, you know, the ones helping to figure these problems out, right? It's always in their interest, whatever it ends up with. Um, you know, these are the same companies that got us in this situation of climate change, of, of plastic pollution. You know, how are, are they really going to fix it? I don't think so, because they've known since the beginning that what they're producing is causing, you know, a threat to life on this earth, essentially. Um, so, yeah, I don't especially. Yeah, this one, the one bill that, that has this recycling partnership involved is, is not not a good way to go. Not going to meet any um, requirements. I want to ask also if we just went wrong somewhere with recycling in general, because in the same story, it's noted that recycling rates in the U.S. have stagnated over the past decade at 30 or 35 percent across materials in the waste stream. Plastic recycling rates are much lower at more like 8.5 percent. That was the figure, uh, the estimate of what plastic got recycled in 2018. And I wonder why why you think recycling rates are are so low. Is it uh, is it that the burden is too great? Like, is that you know, it's it's not that difficult to sort your waste. Is it that people don't actually trust uh, recycling? Because I've, I've definitely met people who say this all goes away in the same truck like it's just a lie. And I, I don't know that they're always wrong, right? I, I don't, you know, I, I like the idea of recycling. I think it's, I think it could be good. In in New Hampshire, where my sister lives, uh, you just throw everything into one, into one big garbage can and the municipality says that they'll separate it later, which everybody knows is just a lie. Yeah. What do you, what do you think went wrong, Tina? Or are we part of the problem because recycling's great and everyone who's doing it is honest and we're just being, you know, we're, we're spreading misinformation here. Yeah, no, it's, it's a problem of recycling itself, not necessarily the, the people, the customers. Um, only five to 6% of plastics are currently recycled. And at the peak of plastic recycling, it was only 10%. 
max <laughs> since its inception. And, and just to talk about what it means about to recycle plastic, the main process that's used is this downcycling process, which basically grinds the plastic up into tiny bits or into fibers, and then it's made into things like clothing. Mm-hmm. And then when you wash those clothing, all those microfibers of microplastics enter the water system. Uh, no, and, and, and even that process, it's only, it's only cycled through twice. So eventually it's going to end up in a landfill or incinerated anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so plastic, you know, you really can't truly recycle plastic, but there are, you know, 90% of plastics could be made from plant-based materials. It could be bio, bioplastics, which actually were created, you know, early on in the 1900s. Mm-hmm. Actually, Henry Ford even made an entire car out of bioplastics at one point. But he realized that fossil fuel materials were way cheaper, so he scrapped that whole idea. But, you know, the, the process and the, the, the technology to make things out of bioplastics has been around for a long time. Um, but really, yeah, recycling, especially with plastic, is, is just a dead end. It doesn't actually work. And oftentimes what's considered recycling is things like what, what industry is calling advanced recycling or chemical recycling, which is actually just incineration, green, greenwashing of incineration. We're, we're recycling it into smoke. Unbelievable. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. I also like that the story had a line that was kind of taking a jab at uh, China and other Asian countries uh, for not accepting Western plastic waste anymore. A, a couple years back, I think they all went, no, we, we don't want any more of this. And it's presented in this story as, um, you know, well, hey, recycling, the, recycling was great because it was going to be able to pay for itself until we couldn't get, I guess, extremely cheap labor from these other countries. And it's like, yeah, I think maybe that was a flaw in your logic the whole time. Right. I mean, outsourcing in general, outsourcing of garbage from the global north, as well as production, it's all about putting the environmental impacts, the environmental destruction, the pollution onto countries of the global south. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and corporations are looking for a cheaper way to do it. And of course, labor is cheaper. But but honestly, when this is considered recycling, this outsourcing of the waste, but in the end, these countries often don't have the capacity to recycle all this waste. So it once again ends up in landfills or it's incinerated. Yeah. Um, so it ends up back in the environment anyway. And yet we're told we need to continue to give these companies financial incentives to do something else. And it just, yeah, I'm on the topic of, uh, you know, incorporating, um, well, on the topic of greenwashing, I guess, on the topic of, uh, trying to rope some of the biggest wrongdoers in various industries into writing themselves. Uh, there was a story in the Wall Street Journal this morning about a police raid at the offices of Deutsche Bank's DWS group. So the CEO of the group is stepping down after the raid, which was conducted over allegations of greenwashing. Apparently, this DWS group was being investigated by U.S. authorities for allegedly overstating how much it uses sustainable investing criteria to manage its assets. And so you've had a bunch of banks, a bunch of, you know, the world's biggest banks getting into this trend of saying, listen, we know we've been the the nastiest, worst people on the planet for like a century now. But believe us, now we're into making money by supporting industries and assets that are good for the environment or good for people or good for the democracy or whatever you little people are into. Um, So Deutsche Bank was apparently, allegedly, uh, basically pretending to do this while doing nothing of the sort, 
Last week, apparently, the SEC fined Bank of New York Mellon Corporation $1.5 million for misleading claims about this very type of fund. Uh, They're called Environmental Social Governmental Criteria Funds. Um, And so I wanted to mention this because it it speaks to the the total incompatibility of big finance with sustainability or with anything that is primarily good for people and only secondarily extremely profitable. And I wanted to get your feedback on that. And also on this $1.5 $1.5 million fine of a bank the size of uh, Mellon Bank? I mean, come on. Right. I mean, it's just symbolic. It's, it's That kind of fine doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's once again greenwashing. It's like, oh, yeah, we're, we're, fight, we're pushing back against these financial institutions that mm-hmm. are destroying the planet or funding the destruction of the planet. Um, but really, it's, it's, it's not, not going to go anywhere. And these ESG funds, by the way, like there's one type of criteria for the ESG funds that's called best in class. Mm-hmm. And it, it actually includes fossil fuel corporations. Oh, yeah. The, one, the ones that are a little less evil, right? So, so people think they're, gonna, they're investing in these environmentally sustainable you know, corporations, but they're actually not. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's the whole system of capitalism. It's, it, it, there's no way that capitalism can ever be sustainable. Capitalism is the reason we are in the climate crisis that we're in now because of overproduction, because of commodifying everything on the planet, mm-hmm. the prioritizing po- profits over people and the planet. Um, and it can never be sustainable no matter what you do, because, because profits are always the main goal of the system and nothing can change that no matter how many fines you put on these banks or these corporations. Yeah. And you can't really, you can't really, uh, in this system, create a short-term incentive to do so. You just can't. It's not possible. You can't do it. And so, yeah, this idea that we can consume our way out of uh, out of this problem, or that we can work cooperatively uh, with the same companies that, until you know, every time this happens, it was like until 30 seconds ago, we were the the biggest offenders on this particular issue. But sure, yeah, let's sign it. Let's sign a deal. Definitely, we're doing this out of the goodness of our hearts. It's so childish and yet it's you know it's sold to us so heavily right it's sold to us so heavily that the you know we have a society that's built entirely on consumption not even on production anymore just on consumption and so the idea that anything could be solved uh, through something other than consumption just has to be anathema it feels like yeah i mean it's 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 an unfortunate (laughs) it's unfortunate yes (laughs) There's even these discussions of like trying to reform these institutions to become something progressive. I mean, it's such a waste of the very little time we have left to turn to turn around the issue of climate change and, and address it. I mean, what needs to happen is we need to seize these funds of these major financial institutions and use them to rebuild society, transform society into one sustainable, you know, build a renewable energy infrastructure, restore ecosystems. I mean, the, the wealth is there, the knowledge is there, the technology exists. It's just all the wealth is controlled at the top by a small, small minority that's driving us <laughs> towards an extinction. Yeah, yeah. Hey, what a great idea. Let's take some of it back. Uh, Tina Landis, last time we spoke to you, you were uh, preparing for a book tour. Is that still the case? Yeah. So this weekend I'm going to be in uh, Seattle and Portland speaking. And then mid, uh, mid-June I'll be in the Midwest in six different cities. Um, yeah, just talking about climate solutions, the real solutions to climate change and how capitalism is really holding us back um, to transforming society and, and 
securing our existence in the future. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, if, if anyone's in those areas, please check it out. And you can find the tour dates on liberationnews.org mm-hmm. as well as you can buy a copy of my book there as well. And that book is Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism. That was Tina Landis. Tina, as always, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back with a few last headlines, including some breaking ones that seem pretty interesting. Uh, We'll be right here on Radio Sputnik, live in D.C. in just a sec. Back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. So this just in. This just in. Literally just in. A verdict has been reached in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. And what is it? We don't know. It will be announced publicly at 3 o'clock p.m. So that's in an hour and 10 minutes. Fairfax County Circuit Court, Fairfax, Virginia. We're talking about this with so much excitement as though we have been following it at all. (laughs) No, not at all. In any way on the show. Not at all. Yep. Sorry. I also wanted to raise something uh, that was reported uh, from Israel today. Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett announced this morning that Israel's new laser based missile shield will cost $2 per missile interception. So Reuters reported today that Israel's Iron Dome system would shoot down missiles with other missiles at a cost of tens of thousands of dollars per shoot down. Yes. Right? This new thing is called the Iron Beam system. It fires a laser at incoming missiles and rockets. It superheats them in the air and it causes them to explode. And you get all that for two bucks. I just, and supposedly this is like, this is tested. It's basically, it's ready to be rolled out, right? Yes, yes, it's been tested and approved. It works and they're putting it into regular service next year. So I just, again, this is like the third time I've said this, but (laughs) didn't we give Israel a billion dollars specifically for Iron Iron Dome? Dome. In addition to the money that we give them every year, more more direct aid, more... I think it's more aid than we give any other country. It Maybe is. Afghanistan eclipsed it, but no, you know, no, it's yeah. more than any other country. Uh, Egypt is a distant second. Yes, yes, and of course we give Egypt and Israel aid basically to agree to play nicely forever exactly. over that Sinai. Yes, yes, exactly. So, but so in addition to all of that, four months ago, yeah, and they took another it. billion dollars for uh-huh. for the Iron Dome, which, they, they which took at it the put time it in their they pockets. must have known they were only going to use for another year. Yep. Cool, right? Love that relationship. Speaking of relationships, uh, probably worth noting that Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov is in Riyadh today meeting with members Mm -hmm. of the Gulf Cooperation Council ahead of an OPEC Plus meeting tomorrow. Um, Cannot imagine that old Sergei is pushing for an increase in oil production right now. Not that, you know, absolutely not. Also can't imagine MBS needs to be talked out of it at the moment either, since he's shown uh, no interest in increasing production or doing anything really that the Biden administration wants him to do, except for possibly where did we hear this, this rumor that maybe, maybe what we would get in lieu of any of this other stuff is uh, an announcement of normalized relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Where did we hear that? Um, 
Yeah, we heard it just a week ago. Uh, it, it was in the editorial meeting. Uh, our our boss brought it up. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe maybe we will get that. I, I don't think there's yeah. going to be this OPEC Plus format breath. meeting tomorrow. Uh, probably there will not be any uh, production increases announced. And uh, yep. uh, yeah, in addition to all of the things the Biden administration has supposedly not been able to anticipate, it didn't anticipate mm-hmm. needing some cooperation from another great ally of ours, uh, Saudi Arabia. So. Yeah. Yep. Yep, indeed. Uh, Speaking of Saudi Arabia, uh, there has been some breaking news. And again, this sounds more consequential than it is so far. But apparently a group of nearly 50 members of Congress have just introduced legislation to invoke constitutional war powers to end unauthorized U.S. military involvement in Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen. Huge. This is announced by the Progressive Caucus. And uh, yeah, you know, I mean, it would be great. It would be great to see that done. Another promise that Joe Biden made coming into office yes. that he was going to end support for this war. And then we got that it's little semantic jig mm-hmm. where uh, it turns out, oh, no, we're just going to end offensive support, you know, as though there is really much of a line between offensive and, and defensive That's when right. it comes to wartime. Um, but yeah, this resolution the caucus notes comes more than seven years after unauthorized U.S. participation began and details just how brutal uh, this this war has been and just how dire the consequences. So, mm-hmm. you know, maybe we'll see Congress decide that it wants to take back some of its power. I haven't seen a lot of uh, appetite for that recently, you know, this, but this is a very big deal, not just that there's a possibility that this war could end, which would be a wonderful thing. But Yemen is is one of the most oppressed, poverty stricken and dangerous places on the planet. And it is up to the countries that participated in its destruction to account for its rebuilding. And I highly doubt we're going to see any of that. There's not going to be a massive aid package for Yemen, either in the United States or from the Saudis to the Emiratis. God, no. It's just not going to happen. You know, simultaneously with that, we get the statement from the State Department about the the new drawdown of military aid for Ukraine that I think you mentioned earlier on the show, another $700 million. Mm -hmm. The 11th drawdown of arms and equipment from the DOD for Ukraine's defense uh, since February 24th. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Uh, They count U.S. military assistance to Ukraine at approximately $4.6 billion. Uh, since February, because they're not counting those other tens of billions as military mm-hmm. assistance to Ukraine, right. probably because a lot it of it's just count. going straight to Raytheon and um, Lockheed Martin here in the mm-hmm. United States to replenish what we're giving them. Um, but yeah, so a, a pretty clarifying, I guess, edifying um, contrast there between what we should expect for Yemen and what we are um, continuing to shell out for Ukraine. That's right. That's right. You know, I've mentioned on the show a couple of times, I, I've been to Yemen five times over the years. And every time I go, it's worse than the previous time. And the last time I went, um, it was it was chaos. I, I had to I had to take not just an armored car, but it was an armored convoy from the airport to the hotel. There's only one hotel we're allowed to use. Americans are allowed to use in the in the country. It's it's the Marriott. And um, uh, there was a group of uh, South Korean diplomats who were driving from the airport to the Marriott and they were assassinated in a rocket attack on the car. So the South Korean intelligence service sent a group of investigators to Yemen to investigate the assassination. 
and they were assassinated on the road from the airport to the hotel. Now, couple that with with poverty and starvation and COVID and no water and no medication. And it's one of the worst places on earth. And we're doing nothing to make it any better. No, despite the fact, fact that we've created many actively of these helping problems. to make it worse. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Very sad. Uh, less sad, but dare I say, maybe a tiny bit more deserved, at least more deserved than a, a Yemeni school aged child and a bus being blown up. Uh, bison gores tourist oh, and tosses her yeah. 10 feet at Yellowstone National Park. Uh, yeah. Apparently, I mean, it's this 25 year old woman. She has died. Uh, she died. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They wouldn't they wouldn't say what her condition was. They just said she was gored and thrown 10 feet. Later reports say that she died. Wow. Yeah. She apparently approached the animal while I guess near Old Faithful. Um, her name hasn't been released, but uh, the she saw the bison. She got within 10 feet of it. Bison are unpredictable. This is what I learned from reading stories this morning. And yeah, she was attacked. They got big horns. Yeah. They're yeah, they wild do. animals. Yes, they it, are. You just don't walk up to No. Them. And they weigh 1,500 pounds, 2,000 yeah. pounds. They said she was a 25-year-old woman from Grove City, Ohio. Mm-hmm. I only remember that because I have a friend that lives in Grove City, Ohio. Yeah. But yeah, never, ever, ever approach a wild animal. Never. I like this little rule of thumb for uh, at Yellowstone for how much distance you should keep between you and animals. It's uh, you're supposed to stay at least 25 y- yards. That's a long way away. Yeah. Away from sheep, deer and moose and 100 yards away from bears and wolves. Wow. Yeah. So I'd, I'll stay miles away from bears if I possibly can. Wow. Uh, yeah. So that is that's really sad. And also, do you remember that great um, little viral clip of the reporter in Yellowstone? talking about he's standing there on a highway and he's like r- reporting from Yellowstone. And then you can see a group of bison coming down a hill and he just goes, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> I do remember that. Up, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> smart move, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was a smart move. That was great. I mean, I, that I think uh, made him famous. I think he went on to like get some, you know, dream job <laughs> after that and good for him. And also good for being an example of what you're supposed to do when a, you realize that you're standing close to a wild animal. Um, I other I also have just a little bit of Catholic news to slide in here. This was fascinating. Yeah. So you know, Catholics, we're still we're still turning people into saints. I don't know. Right. Why I say we like I'm really a practicing Catholic or anything. <laughs> uh, and so apparently, this this Filipino Archbishop uh, is one step closer to being achieving sainthood. Uh, he has been given the title of Venerable uh, by the Pope. That was earlier in May. Um, and uh, among the things that he is known for is testimonies report his ability to levitate in prayer, heal, heal the sick and bilocate. Right. Which I had never heard of. Which I guess would be a mere. I think the rule with uh, who gets to be a saint, you know, is you have to have performed a miracle, but the miracles can be performed after you die. Right. right. Someone prays right. for your intercession and their their cancer is healed or whatever. Correct. Um, you know, According to the story, he seems like a man who was de- dedicated to the poor, mm-hmm. serving the poor, uh, didn't care about material possessions. Mm-hmm. And But I just think it's it's really interesting that you have this process of like saying, mm-hmm. OK, did this guy could this guy levitate while he was right. praying? Did he was right. he really in two places at once? OK, yeah, guess he was we'll- apparently in town. And at the same time, he was 30 miles away anointing um, a sick man. Yeah, I'm not sure I believe it, but I do think it's interesting that the process is still going on. And I very much enjoy 
horror movies and thrillers about this very mystery. Yeah, me too. We're going to leave it here today. Uh, thank you to all of our guests. Thanks to our engineers and producers. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and me, Michelle Witte, thank you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> 